0: an awful lot to get through today, so we want to get started. Um, welcome to our session on accessibility at historic sites and museums. I uh, just want to start out with some quick introductions of our panel. I'm Katie Stringer. I'm currently with the Blunt Mansion Association in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about my research prior to Blunt Mansion and a little bit about what we're doing now. Uh, also on our panel we have Kelly Hawkins from President Lincoln's college, co- I put college on there. Cottage. (laughs) And, yes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And she's going to be talking about um, hearing impairments and ASL at her site. Um, Next, we have Karen Wade from the Homestead Museum in City of Industry, California. That's Los Angeles County and she'll be talking about um, programs for people with cognitive impairments and also their caregivers. And last we have Maddie Ettenheim from the Museum Access Consortium in New York City. And I'm really, I I love Max, I'm excited to hear what she has to say about that. Um, She also works um, on an internship for high school students um, where they place them in different cultural organizations um, and the students uh, have visual impairments. So make sure you get one of her cards before you leave. They have Braille on them and they're very neat. So, um, and I think we all have cards, so if you have questions at the end, we're more than happy to talk to you afterwards. And uh, we are gonna do a Q&A at the end. Um, this session is being recorded, so we have a wireless mic, um, so they'll help facilitate that when we get to that part. So, what we are talking about, we're talking about accessibility and inclusion. Um, we've all kind of been working on this at our own sites, and we're hoping at the end, if you've done something great at your site, that you'll share that with us. Um, and there are many ways that this can be practiced at sites. Um, I know we're all going to talk about how this doesn't really fit, you know, it's not one size fits all. Everyone has something they can do um, depending on their budget, their staff size, and all of that. Um, To start with, a little bit about terminology. We all use different terms uh, to talk about disability. I use intellectual disability to refer to um, mental disabilities, um, cognitive delay, and that's just um, in accord with public law 111-256, also known as Rosa's Law, uh, which was signed into um, effect by President Obama. Um, Learning disability, we use um, to refer to impairments like dyslexia, where people might have a higher IQ, um, but have trouble with reading or with math. Um, I know that Karen uses cognitive um, impairments, and so uh, all these different terms, you know, mean different things, but they're all kind of related. So if you get a little confused, don't feel, you know, feel like you can ask. Um, Also, I just wanted to touch base really quickly on language. Um, With any kind of disability, we always put the person first. Um, So don't say um, the blind person. You say the person with a visual impairment. So um, that's one of the first steps in kind of um, making your site accessible. Um, Avoid labels. I love this cartoon. Um, It says, so what do you prefer to be called? Handicapped, disabled, physically challenged. And the person in the wheelchair says, um, Joe would be fine. So um, that's just kind of... (laughs) Uh, Something to kind of keep in your mind as you're thinking about accessibility and always make sure to emphasize the positive in any situation. Um, Second of all, I I just kind of like this quote from the Disability Resource Agency for Independent Living. It says, a disability is a condition that limits a person's ability to walk, talk, see, hear, or reason. A handicap is an imposed barrier that restricts a person. And uh, Karen brought up to me before the session started that uh, the origins of the word handicap Um, comes from hand, um, cap in hand, so begging. So, uh, we all kind of try to stay away from that word a little bit. So, um, just awareness, trying to get this started with some of these key points. And of course, the importance of access. We're all going to talk about this. And uh, really, at this point, you know, no one has any excuse not to have some kind of accessibility, you know, no matter what your budget or your staff size. Um, and of course, not only is it le- a legal obligation with ADA um, and a moral obligation, but also remember that you know, there are more than 50 million people in the United States with a disability. And these are visitors that you could have coming to your site, you know, and they'll bring somebody with them oftentimes. So um, just some things to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we go forward. And now I'm going to transition into my part of the presentation. Um, which is a case study that I did for my dissertation at the Sam Davis home in Smyrna, Tennessee. Um, A little bit about that site. It is a um, Civil War era plantation. That's what they interpret. Um, They do have, in this picture, you can see off to the side of the house, um, they do have access um, for wheelchairs on a ramp. Um, But I worked there several different times throughout my career. And uh, they didn't really have any kind of programs for people with special needs. And um, for my dissertation research, I really wanted to focus on creating programs for um, special education classes. Um, and classes that include all range of disabilities and abilities. And um, so to start for my research, I did surveys of teachers. And these surveys I did... Um, just online. I sent them out on listservs. I posted them on teacher forums. I tried to get out there um, to as many people as possible across the country. And I I really just asked some basic starting questions for this research. Um, So these went to um, pre-K through high school teachers that teach in special education departments. So the first question I asked is where do you currently take your students on field trips? Uh, So of course we get Uh, 15% said none of the above. So, didn't really do a whole lot of field trips. Um, Parks, science museums, art museums, children's museums. uh, History museums, 9%. Historical sites, 14%. So, uh, that is, you know, a pretty significant number when you think about it. So, this is an audience that is coming to historic sites. So, figuring out what they want to learn about is kind of where I went next. I also asked what kind of disabilities did they have in their classrooms, and so this was a whole range. Um, You can see um, many of them had different, you know, varying disabilities, several different ones in one class, learning disabilities, autism, uh, intellectual disabilities, attention deficit disorder. So there's a very wide range that I was dealing with here, and I didn't want to focus just on autism, um, which Maddie's going to talk about, or just on hearing impairment. I wanted to look at these classrooms that have this diverse population within them, which of course is very challenging, but um, if you work with any education groups, you know, um, with first graders, there's all ranges of ability in those classes, so just adapting that um, for special programs is kind of what I was after. So... One of the best questions I got answered was, what do you want your students to get out of this field trip? And pretty even social skills, educational skills, and life skills were the um, main outcomes that teachers wanted for their students. So I took all of this information and went to the Sam Davis home. And um, one of the biggest challenges was getting students there. And I was only able to get one class to commit to come once in the fall, once in the spring, to kind of test things out. So the first time around, they did just the normal tour. Uh, They did one educational enrichment program. Uh, They watched the video, and um, we just kind of did it as we would do any school group. And I observed and took notes throughout, and... um, did surveys at the end for the teachers and kind of asked the students afterwards, you know, what did you think about this? And everyone had a good time, but at the same time in the surveys, the teachers said, you know, it could have been more involved for them. They could have, um, you know, asked more questions. They could have had a bathroom break. So all this feedback I kind of took and condensed and put it into the second tour. And so for the second tour, Uh, We did more inquiry. We did more hands-on. They did a program where they could actually touch items. Um, You can see in this picture at the bottom, the guide actually went behind the rope and picked things up to show them. Um, And it was just kind of a more interactive experience. We let them ring the kitchen bell. So um, it was much more successful, it seemed like. Even on the tour, you could tell that they were engaged. Um, Especially, uh, we went by... We changed the tour route the second time. So the plantation has about 160 acres, so it's a really big site. They have a lot of land. Uh, the first time, they just went to the house. This time, we changed up the route and took them by the slave cabins, let them look inside. And uh, one of the biggest impacts, I think, is um, afterwards, one of the students was talking about that. And it had really stayed with them. And they said, oh, we didn't realize that they had children who were slaves as well. So. Um, Definitely just kind of switched things up, got them involved, got them thinking, asking questions, and it was much more successful. So we kind of took this and thought, well, if this works with one special group, it'll work with everyone. So now they're really trying to take all of their programs um, for any tour that comes and really make it more interactive and keep people engaged. So out of this, I came up with seven key components that um, kind of made this successful for the Sam Davis Home. Uh, So the first one was sensitivity and awareness. So that was for the staff, making sure everyone knows what kind of language to use. Make sure that they're aware of um, how some students might act or they might act out. Um, second was planning and communication, so making sure that the staff knows what's going to happen, the teachers know, and then uh, giving the students kind of a schedule beforehand. We're going to do this first, then we'll have a bathroom break, so everyone kind of knows what's coming next. Uh, the second or the third one was timing, so making sure you aren't lecturing to them for too long, uh, which is good practice for anyone, uh, any group of people. Um, Engagement, keeping them engaged, asking questions, not just talking at them, saying, oh, in this parlor room, what do you think they would have done for entertainment? What do you do for entertainment? Do you think they had an Xbox? Um, So just kind of keeping things moving in that way. Um, Also, object-centered and inquiry-based. This is the biggest thing, and of course this works with any education group, so it's really not a surprise, but we had an object table on the second tour with an iron and a curling iron and uh, different items that they could actually touch and see and compare to how um, they were then to how they are now Um, and definitely keeping them asking questions to learn. Uh, And then the last two are kind of contradictory. Structure and flexibility. You have to have both. You have to have some kind of structure to know the schedule and what's going to happen and keep things moving, but you also have to be flexible because you never know what is going to happen. So, um, Currently, I um, I graduated with my PhD from Middle Tennessee. Several of you are here. Yay! Um, and got a job at the Blunt Mansion in Knoxville. We are currently doing master planning and conservation of the building. And as you can see on this picture, uh, we have steps. We don't have access right now into the building at all. Uh, we were closed for several months. We're working on changing everything, basically. Um, (laughs) So it's kind of an interesting time. We are working on a digital docent program that's gonna be really fantastic if we can get it up and moving. Um, It's on iPads. Everyone will get to take their iPad with them on tour. Um, If you can't get into the house, the information's all there on the iPad. Um, It has interactives. it has information you can have printed and take home with you and it's just really great so we're really looking forward to that when we can get it together. Um, I have one part-time staff member and myself so we're all a little all over the place (laughs) but again you know we are working on this and we are working towards getting accessible programs and in the visitor center, we do have things available uh, for people who might not be able to get into the house. They can get onto the grounds. They can go through the gardens. Um, But it is a challenge. And the other thing is my book just came out. So um, with Roman and Littlefield, it's downstairs in their booth. If you are interested in learning more about the case study and the um, seven key components of programs. Um, And this is basically all of the information from my dissertation, um, I brought it together to make it sort of a manual for people to be able to use. Um, so if you're interested in learning more about, um, especially the classrooms for children with special needs, then it could be helpful. And I have all my contact information here, so um, if you have questions, I'm sorry if I was talking too fast, I want to make sure we have time for everybody, but um, if you do have questions, please let us know and we'll take all the questions at the end. So, all right. Now I'll introduce Callie Hawkins.
1: I'm not sure if that was for me or for Katie, but it might be a little premature for me. So, <laughs> so we'll just we'll just see about that. Um, while I'm pulling up my PowerPoint, I will say um, one one funny story about um, President Lincoln's college um, is that, uh, we had, we had some visitors, a family, um, who came one time and they had this, their little boy with them. And, um, they kept telling their son that they were going to President Lincoln's cottage, but I guess he was also here in college. And they said by the time they pulled in the parking lot, he was in tears because he thought that they were dropping him off at college. And so, uh, so it's something I'm always, uh, conscious of, um, because it is a, it is a hard distinction to make. So, that's always a lot of fun. Um, this is also the perfect room for doing this, so it uh, removes any nerves that one has when presenting to a group of people, because I can't see your faces. Um, so that's, that's great. Uh, as Katie said, I am Callie Hawkins, Associate Director for Programs, um, which means that I work with all of our education programs, interpretation, public programs, exhibits, and um, most of the, the frontline operations. Um, and I don't know how many of you have ever heard of President Lincoln's Cottage, but we're a relatively new site. We opened to the public uh, for the first time in February of 2008. So we've been open um, just a little over uh, six years um, now, and I've been with the site for about five and a half years. Um, one of the, the really fascinating things about the cottage is that we don't have many objects um, and so we like to say that we f- have furnished the House with Lincoln's ideas rather than his objects. This was a place where um, President Lincoln um, developed his ideas around the Emancipation Proclamation. It's in Washington, D.C., so it was sort of his home away from the White House. Um, and it was a-, a place that the Lincoln family spent considerable amount of time um, initially in grief of their little boy Willie um, And later um, spent from June to November there um, of 1862, 1863, and 1864. So it really is a special place for talking about President Lincoln. And the fact that um, the furniture that was uh, taken to the cottage every year that the Lincolns lived there was primarily White House furniture, you know, it went back to the White House. And so we don't have access to, to that now And so I think that it it challenged us when um, developing the original interpretation of the cottage to do something a little unique. Um, And in focusing on the ideas um, and in focusing on the house as our major object, because so much of the original fabric is still there, um, there were a lot of really fascinating opportunities that opened up. Um, One of those is that we decided early on to use technology as a way to supplement the, the rich... Um, stories, the primary source documents that we had. Um, So we use technology in in kind of innovative ways to to help supplement those stories. Um, And that technology has opened us up to ways that we can work um, with visitors with a variety of of learning styles. Um, It also has helped us develop programs uh, um, for visitors with sight impairments, Um, And the two uh, different programs I'm going to talk about today um, have been focused um, on visitors with um, uh, varying hearing impairments. Um, I am very well aware of the fact that I'm probably not going to share too much that's earth shattering. But I I do also think that um, it's nice to hear, especially from smaller sites. I I know that this conference in particular, we have a lot of people who work at small sites with small budgets and small um, resources. And and so I think it is nice to to know that there are things out there. To sort of um, reiterate a point that Katie made earlier, I think sometimes when we think about accessibility, we think that there's only one way to do something. And um, and I think that um, there are so many different ways to do things. The most important thing is that we do them. And I think that, you know, it's no longer acceptable not to provide accessibility to, you know, as, as many different people as we can. Um, and so we hit on a couple of different ways that we can work with um, visitors with hearing impairments. And one of those that I wanted to talk about um, was a program that we developed... Uh, with uh, an interpreting, um, an ASL interpreting uh, company uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. We have had so many requests for um, tours uh, that provide an ASL interpreter. Um, And we love to be able to accommodate them, um, but we're not always able to. Um, you know, sometimes we don't get as much notice as it might take to contact a company to then send somebody out there. Um, the, the different companies that we've worked with require, uh, you know, different amounts of lead time. Some can do it in as quick as, you know, 24 hours. Others require three weeks advance notice. Um, and so one of the things that we found is that we were constantly scrambling um, to provide ASL interpreters for larger groups, but then we recognized, too, that that there are many uh, deaf visitors in our own community that wanted to be able to just walk through the doors and off the street. And what we had available to them was, you know, as defined by law, a reasonable accommodation. And I would I would suspect I'd like to just As much as I can see, a show of hands. Um, A show of hands for people who've been able to provide a written script or something like that for for visitors, uh, deaf visitors and all that. So that's what we were able to do. The problem with that for us, and I don't know if you've encountered the same thing, is that our tour guides don't follow a script. And so you're handing deaf visitors a script where they can read along with a tour that's going in a totally different direction. And, um, and it, it, it becomes uh, extremely frustrating uh, for the guide, who wants to provide the best experience for all of the visitors, but it's also frus- a frustration for um, the, um, the, the visitors themselves. And so that got us thinking about um, the opportunity of working with um, Birnbaum Interpreting Services, who uh, sent an ASL interpreter, to shadow different tours given by different tour guides. And um, we were able to do workshops with them, with our staff, to talk about common words. One of the things that uh, is unique to to ASL2 is that when you have a word, or two words, a phrase like emancipation proclamation, which is uttered no less than probably 35 times on our tour, um, the, the ASL interpreter was having to spell out Emancipation Proclamation every single time it was said. You add on top of that the United States Constitution... The Constitution of the Confederate States of America and the Declaration of Independence, and you have you know a, a, a really um, a, a cumbersome tour uh, for an ASL interpreter. So we were able to work with them um, on establishing uh, certain. Um, language that would be used only for this tour that was shared with visitors ahead of time, which was um, really tremendously helpful. Uh, And what we did is that we then sent different tour guides um, on a tour with this ASL interpreter, and we videoed the ASL interpreter um, signing different rooms with different guides. Um, The reason, and I'm not sure what happened there, The reason that was so important um, was that because guides don't uh, follow a script, each tour is just a little bit different, and that's something that is encouraged um, by the site and a reason that our visitors, I think, find the experience um, so uh, incredibly rewarding. And so we captured all of that on film. What you see on this slide uh, on the left-hand side is um, the ASL interpreter um, signing part of that. I also have a video clip. If anybody's interested in seeing that, I'll be happy to share that afterwards. Um, We wrote a grant uh, that enabled us to purchase 20 different iPods so that we could load this video onto the iPods and share those with visitors as they walk in off the street. The reason that that was so important to us is that you know we we really just feel like everyone should have access at a moment's notice. Um, In doing this, we fully recognize that um, this is a less customized experience, maybe for a lot of the visitors, but um, it also you know is a little more accessible with groups. Uh, who book in advance? We still do try to provide the ASL interpreter, um, but this was a way that is a little more um, financially sustainable for a site like ours in an urban area that gets so many requests from you know a couple who who want to come or you know two or three people. it just it was a, a much better um, option for us and for the visitor. Uh, to launch this program, we worked with Gallaudet University, which has a great Lincoln connection. Lincoln signed the charter for that school. That's a, um, a college uh, for the deaf in Washington. And they were eager to work with us to put the, the message out there that this was available. And um, as a result, you know, we do we do get a lot more walk-in visitors uh, from the deaf community uh, in our area. And so that's been a, a tremendously rewarding experience um, a thing for us to be able to provide. I will say that the challenge associated with this is in helping those visitors who want this type of accommodation and helping them understand what it is. They most of, of um, our deaf visitors who call in advance who aren't aware that we offer this still want that, you know, that ASL live interpreter. Um, and explaining to them is about this program is challenging, but once they get on site and they see it, um, it has uh, it 's really gone a long way uh, with with that community. One of the things that i didn 't realize also about written scripts it just hadn 't occurred to me in this way um, is that you know as we know that the English language for a deaf person is not their first language. ASL is their first language, and so the English language, even written, um, is not their first language. And so we worked with the, the ASL interpreters to write out instructions um, in a way that, um, that was best for those visitors. Um, the second program I wanted to talk about is an extension of this program. And as I mentioned before, uh, we do... Um, use a lot of technology on our tours uh, when we opened to the public. the idea was to create a smart house a house that um, when you when a guide entered the house, all of these different um, resources would be available at the you know the touch of a button. Um, in 2008, believe it or not, we weren't all walking around with smartphones, which is really hard for us to believe now, um, but it's true. And so, so this um, idea was a little ahead of the technology at the time. And in 2011, we had an opportunity to write a grant um, with to IMLS um, to redo our technology and revamp um, our, as we call it, the visitor experience revision. And we were able to do that with uh, tablet technology. This is a little bit different from a lot of the other tablet-based programs, I think, that um, museums are using now in that the way we've developed this program is that the guide is the only one using the tablet. So the guide is using the tablet to trigger audio cues, video cues, um, and it creates a really dynamic um, program uh, and tour experience. we chose the type of, of technology, the type of tablet technology that we did. We chose Microsoft because it has such an open platform that would allow for a lot of flexibility for the development and advancement of future programs. Um, one, of the, one of the really cool things about the tour is that you'll enter a room in the cottage that's sparsely furnished, and um, the guide will will tell a story about a visitor that Lincoln had yeah at that particular time um, when he was living at the cottage. And the guide can, on their uh, their tablet, trigger this resource, as you see here, a map. You can see what the guide sees on their tablet screen and what the visitor sees on a screen projected, um, or an image projected on the floor. Um, This is is really great, except there are several rooms that don't have uh, any sort of visual Image, or they uh, just have audio, speakers on the, on the walls or speakers in the ceiling. Uh, one of the, the comments that we got from the very beginning when we were uh, start, first started using this technology is that there are, are lots of people who have hearing impairments where um, they can hear, but they rely on a mouth to match with the sound. So they rely on the movement of a mouth with the sound. When we had disembodied voices coming from the wall or coming from the ceiling or coming from the floor, they could not hear um, those quotes. They could not get the full benefit of the, the primary source. And One of our, our visitors um, came, who came on a tour, she said, I loved the entire experience, but I could not hear Lincoln's words. I could not hear what Colonel Scott was was saying to President Lincoln when he visited in 1864. And I think that, that you have the technology and I'd love to see you be able to do something. So this is exactly the kind of feedback that we were hoping to get and the kind of opportunities we were looking for when we first developed um, our visitor education revision using the tablets. And so we got to back together with our media developers who created um, this this tablet-based program And one of the things that kept sticking out in my mind, I had just gone to the opera for the first time. And I don't know how many of you have been to the opera, but you've got these, you know, the screens in front of every seat that's translating. And we thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could pair two tablets so the tablet that the interpreter is using could be paired with the tablet that a visitor is holding. And as the interpreter, the historical interpreter, cues a, an audio, a clip, the visitor is holding the other tablet and gets a full transcription of what's being said. Um, we've just launched that. I think um, we had our first two visitors use that last week, and it was overwhelmingly successful. Um, and so these are just two of the examples that that I wanted to share for things that... Um, that you can do with limited resources. I will say, you know, the the um, development of... Oops, and I didn't... There we go. You can see that there. You can see the, the interpreter standing at the front. She's holding her tablet, and the two visitors are there holding the tablet that's paired with that one with the full media transcription. Um, you know, one of the things that we found is that um, there are lots of different foundations, lots of different groups that are looking to fund projects like this. Uh, we would not have been able to do this without grant funding. Um, but you know, if you, if you have these ideas and you're looking to make your site more accessible um, in all kinds of different ways, there are groups out there that, that are eager to fund these types of programs. So thank you very much. And oh, I still got the applause. That's nice. You're too, too kind. All right. There you go.
2: Thank you. Hello, everyone. Again, I'm Karen Wade, the director of the Homestead Museum uh, in Southern California, and I'm going to be talking about a program that we've developed over the last couple of years called California Living. Uh, It's a program developed not just for visitors with cognitive impairments or intellectual disabilities, but also their caregivers. And We're going to talk about why uh, linking these two, uh, I feel at least, is so important. Giving you a little information about who we are, uh, the Homestead Museum is a six-acre historic site Uh, located about 20 miles east of downtown Los Angeles, and we've been open since 1981. We have two historic uh, houses on the property, the Workman Home, uh, which was originally built as an adobe in the 1840s, extensively remodeled circa 1870, and then the home of his grandson, Walter Temple, which is a 1920s Spanish colonial revival mansion. Uh, We not only interpret these two families in our site, but we use them as a case study to explore the development of Southern California. And then by sharing these stories, link our history to people's lives today. Because I feel that it's so important for us always to link history to the present, basically, so we can move into the future. Uh, A little bit about uh, what we do and uh, our composition. Uh, We have 10 paid staff members and approximately 60 volunteer staff members. Uh, And just like any uh, historic site or house museum, we have public and scheduled tours but a lot of special programming. Uh, In fact, uh, many of my colleagues who would normally be here at ASLH couldn't come because we have one of our two biggest festivals this weekend, which we had to schedule this weekend because of the availability uh, of those participating. Uh, We have workshops. We have lectures. We have uh, family programs. We obviously have school programs. Currently. About half of our total attendance, which ranges from 14,000, 15,000, 16,000, depending upon basically what the weather's like for some of our big festivals. And it may be pretty hot this weekend. Uh, About half of our visitation are for uh, special events and about half for docent-led tours. Uh, And uh, of those docent-led tours, only about 2% of those visitors have some type of cognitive impairment. I mean, that, that could be a developmental uh, disability, that could be uh, memory loss, that could be someone on the autism spectrum. So why do we even bother for this tiny population to do something special? That's just something for you to think about. Why do we even bother to do it? Uh, I, I, I'm not going to ask you to answer that. I think we've all been in situations we have to prioritize just to survive. Even though we have a fairly decent-sized staff, um, more than Katie does by a fair amount, we still have very limited resources in many ways. Well. One of the reasons why we have to prioritize is we've got to look at emerging trends, not just today. We can't operate just in today. We've got to look at tomorrow. The aging population. I'm a baby boomer, obviously, and in 2010, 13% of Americans were over the age of 66. In 2030 that figure is going to increase to 20%. And with aging comes uh, accessibility issues, right? And one of those major issues we have to think about is memory loss. Uh, Today, 40% of Americans reaching 85 experience memory loss. By 2050, that figure is going to increase to 62%. And our people are going to live longer. So, I mean, we've got a future that we've got to be prepared for. But also, in the midst of all of this, there's cuts in social services. It's so frightening. This is a quote uh, from the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, uh, just from this year. Tax and welfare reforms are more negative on families that have at least one disabled person. So we've got people out there that have real needs, and what are we going to do about it today and in the future? So what can we do about this? I'm going to have some shout-out answers. I know we're being recorded, so I'm going to just repeat those. But what do you think we could do Uh, to help out. Any ideas? Limited budget. Well, first of all, we've got to explore realistic options. Yes, we've got to do something, but we've got to be realistic. We have to prioritize our resources. We can't be everything to everybody. Uh, So what did we do? Uh, We, first of all, looked at our current visitation. Uh, Even though it wasn't a large number of groups coming, we had a lot of groups. I mean, like, uh, uh, care facilities coming, sometimes even without reservations. Wanting to take their clients, their patients, you know, on a field trip we were not offering anything that was really meaningful to them. Uh, So we brought in an advisory group, a representative of the Alzheimer's Association, uh, a a representative of a long-term care facility. And what do I do, Katie? I'm going to let you handle that. Thank you. Uh, long term care facility and also uh, the executive director for a social service agency in our area, we had them go on our tours, tell us what didn't work, tell you know give us ideas of what would work. so there are resources out there that aren't going to co- you don 't have to even have a grant just find your neighbors uh, who can help uh, and Then we had to just prioritize and we decided to adapt some current programs that we had. If, if, if you've got good education people, they can think outside the box and look at what we already have after getting some feedback and make that adaptation. But also, we made an institutional commitment to uh, provide maximum access for all of our visitors. Uh, we did create uh, a white paper a uh, position paper on access. I have a copy of that with me, uh, which, which deals with several things, uh, including uh, our prioritized audiences. Uh, we, we are fortunate that we actually have uh, someone on our paid staff who is proficient in ASL. So we sort of have that covered, uh, but uh, we, we can't be everything to everyone. So we had to look at who was already coming. Uh, And then, obviously, determine our goals and objectives and realize a a realistic timeline. Uh, Our current docent-led tours, uh, very typical for what uh, I think many historic houses uh, have, a lot of history that's presented chronologically. And uh, chronologically-based history is very hard for some folks to... Uh, process to follow, uh, including people without identifiable disabilities. And a lot of walking, standing, climbing, listening. I mean, all of those things that are really tough. Now, I am going to ask for some feedback this time. Why don't you think that this typical tour is going to work for a visitor with some type of intellectual disability or cognitive impairment, and also, why won't it work for their caregivers? Attention span. Attention span, definitely. I was also going to say that if you can't, if you have issues with the time frame or anything like that, if you become disoriented, or confused or frustrated with the experience? Definitely. Uh, that, that, that time frame... Uh, interruption can be very confusing, very frustrating. Uh, other things that you can think of? For for one thing, concentration. Standing for, for people with memory loss, for people with various types of uh, uh, cognitive disabilities, and those are often coupled with physical uh, disabilities, standing for long periods of time. Okay, those are things for the client or the patient coming with the group. Why, why wouldn't this work for the caregiver? Mm-hmm. Right. They're not necessarily, they're, it's just part of their job. So they uh, are, are not having much fun, and they're not enjoying that. that that's one reason. Can you think of anything else? Yeah, they, they, they will become frustrated if they see their patients are. I've also had examples where the caregiver got so tied up in the tour, to be perfectly honest, they started ignoring their clients. So, there's, so you've got to think about the caregiver as well as the client. So... I'm going to ask some more questions, what would work? What do you think would work on this kind of tour? An elevator, if you had one, well, actually, we did, and I'm not talking about that specifically, in our 1840s, 1870s house, we did install an architecturally sensitive ramp because up until about four years ago, we did not have ready access. Uh, so that kind of accessibility, but but, but once they're in the site, uh huh. Chairs. chairs, 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 chairs. That's not only to. That's not only to uh, you know keep them from being exhausted, but to keep them from wandering, help keep their attention. So many reasons. Anything else you can think of? Uh-huh. Ah, uh, music. I, I, are you sure you don't know about this tour that we do? Uh, anyway, music, sensory experiences are really important. Anything else you can think of? You're, you're, you're giving most of the rest of my PowerPoint here. Tactile. Okay. And one last thing. Remember I talked about uh, a chronologically based tour can be frustrating. So we have developed a, a very thematically based tour. So California Living... Uh, designed for small groups. We feel that it's important to keep the group small. The maximum number we'll have of uh, clients and caregivers is 20, and in that case, we divide it up into two groups uh, with uh, a a, a tour assistant going along with us. Uh, Our average... Uh, size is eight to ten. So we don't have a lot of these people coming. We're not advertising it at this point because we just can't accommodate it. We, at, at this point in time, just want to accommodate the people who are coming on their own. Structured around themes uh, rather than chronology, and we feel that that's really important. Uh, engaging both the clients and the caregivers uh, and, by the way, this is a program that can be easily adapted to people with varying uh, disabilities. Uh, for, for visitors with memory loss, developmental disabilities, autism. We, we have done tours for all three types of groups by just adapting it. And sometimes there's a combination of all three of those in one group. Like if it's a residential care group. Uh, For for instance, for a group with memory loss, we'll focus on memories from uh, their childhood, connecting it. Uh, If if it's uh, a group with uh, developmental disabilities, we'll focus on the here and now. And what we do is we compare the lives of the folks from our site Uh, with the people who are coming through the site, looking at homes, their jobs, and how they like to have fun. So an example, if it's a group uh, with a significant number of uh, the folks who are dealing with memory loss, we'll talk about, you know, do you remember where you lived when you were uh, a child? Uh, Do you remember what your first job was? Uh, Everybody knows what they like to do for fun, whether it's today or in the past. Uh, And then we'll just change that time frame depending upon who the audience is. Uh, Just showing you some folks uh, who are uh, experiencing California living. We do start out by showing our regular visitor video. Uh, which, by the way, does have uh captions so that uh people with hearing impairments can read it uh and and this gives the caregiver a little understanding of the chronology at least, so it provides something for the caregiver. Then we take them and we ask a lot of questions uh too we find out about them we we ask them. You know, what do you do? And and everybody has a job. Uh, For someone who is more severely uh, disabled, the job might be making their bed in the morning, but they still have a job. We then take them to uh, the two older homes, the workman house, uh, where we sit them down in chairs. We have a lot of tactile experiences. This is a building that is not... Uh, uh at this point, furnished, nor do we plan on furnishing it as a historic house It's more gallery space, so we've cleared some areas uh, we let them uh touch cow hides because this was a cattle ranching area uh they're touching an adobe brick, so they compare adobe bricks with whatever uh their house is made of today or as a child. Thank you, Katie. Uh, and then we also do the same thing when we get to our 1920s house. When you talked about music. Uh, that is a 1920s, uh, basically Victrola. Uh, we have an iPad, an iPod, inside the Victrola, playing 1920s music. So they they get to hear 1920s music. Uh, Sometimes we even let them dance the Charleston, Uh, and then we pass around things. This is one opportunity where they can walk around uh, the furnished historic home, but then we sit them down in the main hall, and we talk about the architectural crafts, and that gentleman uh, closest to you, uh, we're looking at some wood carving because there's some incredible architectural crafts in the house, including wood carving. Uh, And we found out that he had been a woodcarver uh, as a younger man, and he was just so fascinated. So basically, why does the program work? Uh, It's adapted, as I said, to each group that comes. Uh, It's never quite the same tour. Uh, It provides, obviously, a lot of touching and interacting, uh, very inquiry-based, but at the level of our visitor, and again, we can vary that depending upon who they are. Uh, And it involves the caregiver. I cannot emphasize more how important that is. Uh, We also try to find out as much as we can ahead of time uh, about the group, you know, who's going to be included. That doesn't mean that that's always who shows up, Uh, but if, if we have sort of the mindset of what our group's going to be like. Uh, At this point in time, only paid staff are doing the tours. We have provided training for the volunteer staff, uh, but uh, because of the need for adaptability and the lower numbers that we have right now. Uh, But it still provides the paid staff member an opportunity uh, to sort of be prepared. And the most important thing is we go with the flow. Uh, You can't predict what's going to happen, and you have to be prepared for that. This is my contact information, uh, and I would love to talk with you afterwards. I do have cards, and if you're ever in Southern California, I hope you can come visit us. Thanks.
3: Hi, everyone. So I'm gonna, I have a lot of notes because I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. Um, and we want to be sure to have time for questions afterwards. So I am going to be talking a bit about what the Museum Access Consortium does as a whole and then dive into a specific pilot project that we are kind of sort of completing. Um, so we're going to start with talking about what MAC is. Has anybody in the room heard of MAC before? Just raise your hand. All right. So basically no one. Um, and that's fine because... Um, We're based in New York City, and I know that New York City and the number of people that we work with is not average for this conference. So we're going to be sure to be talking about how to move that into smaller institutions and less people as well. Um, So Mac is a volunteer-based organization, and I just want to point out I hate reading off PowerPoints, but it's an accessibility thing, so if there's people in the room with a visual impairment, And I just say, here, read the mission on this PowerPoint that's not very accessible. So although I hate it, I'm going to read it for an accessibility point of view. Um, So MAC is a volunteer-based organization that seeks to advance and promote accessibility in cultural institutions of all types for people with disabilities by creating opportunities for cultural professionals, service providers, and members of disability community to exchange best practices, ideas, and resources and provide a network of mutual support. So MAC started in the late 90s, and it began in specializing in professional development workshops. Um, the, the topics that they covered were range. So it was from welcoming veterans, legal ADA updates, up, um, autism 101, tech and accessibility. Um, so a very broad range of different types of disabilities. The professional development sessions are free, and they take place at a variety of institutions all over New York City. The spaces spaces and logistics for these sessions are all given in kind, um, and any guest speakers um, are always volunteer. So already, that's basically no cost involved. Um, By pitching in resources, though, everyone receives something in return. So the attendees are exposed to new ideas, new networks, new people. Um, They're learning new techniques to add to a toolbox that they can use with different types of people. Um, And we average about 50 people per session, depending on what it is. Because of the way Mac evolved from something that was more informal into something that was more formal, there were connections that were developed between disability professionals and museum professionals and people with disabilities. This creates a holistic, multi-perspective conversation, which is something that you can't always find within your own institution. MAC just completed its first three-year funding project from the FAR Fund, and is currently finishing a one-year follow-on grant also from the FAR Fund. It's the first funding that MAC has ever received, and so what we've done with this is all relatively new. One of the central goals of the project from the outset was to engage a cross-section of people from the museum and disability fields, all relating to autism, and talking about students on the autism spectrum and working with their caregivers. As part of the grant, Mac ran 10 professional development workshops, all free, devoted to conversations about autism, two three-year pilot programs at the museum at Eldridge Street and the New York Transit Museum, with direct service hours and training for staff and documentation and dissemination to the rest of the Mac membership. The Mac membership has about 2,000 people, I believe, um, all free. And we have almost 1,000 Facebook followers. So that gives you a sense of the size of the community. Um, So the current phrase that we're in right now, oh sorry, those professional development workshops included parents um, as a panel talking about their children on the autism spectrum and the experiences they've had, teachers as a panel talking about the experiences that they've had, Um, kind of the nitty gritty things about autism learning, so the DIR-based model. Um, We had a session on employment for people on the autism spectrum, so we hope to reach a lot of different types of people all relating to the same topic. Um, The current phase, what we're in right now, is we've done all this work, and now our follow-on grant is to disseminate this information. So we're in the process of making a website that will have an Autism 101 lesson plan for you to be able to use in your own institutions. Um, We're working on having um, a calendar, because one of the things we kept hearing is that it's great that there's all these museums that have all these programs, but we're not really going to click website to website and hope that there's an event. So we're... um, Combining all of those onto the same calendar, we're going to have one directory for everything. Um, So last spring, as part of the first round of funding, we had a public fair for cultural institutions to table and feature their autism-friendly programs. We had about 150 caregivers and children on the autism spectrum come to check out the offerings. And we used the information that we received from running that fair to start our directory. So we're not starting from scratch. We were able to rope multiple events into the same end goal. Um, Before I talk about the pilot programs, what we've talked a little bit about today and the way Mac approaches talking about people with autism is that if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. Um, And that goes the same for cognitive disabilities. That goes the same with visual impairments, and really for anyone across the board. Um, At the end of the day, it's most important to listen to your audience and get feedback and apply and change rather than just assume. So that's where we're approaching this from. The pilot programs worked with two different historic sites over three years and have drawn from local resources to make big changes in inexpensive, not starting from scratch kind of ways. Um, So the first is the Museum at Elders Street. This is in Chinatown in New York City. And if you haven't been, it's one of the most gorgeous places in the entire world. And this doesn't do it justice at all. Um, It's a 126-year-old landmark synagogue. um, That is the first synagogue in the country built by Eastern European Jews. Um, Elder Street had no history of running autism friendly programs, but is a perfect fit for people on the autism spectrum because it's literally a sanctuary. Um, It's a calming living space where you can touch everything, um, and it doesn't have any sort of type of crowd issues or noise. It's about as calming as it looks, um, which is very. Um, Elder Street has extremely loyal docents and a two person education team. The docents are not paid, they're all volunteer. Elder Street staff um, started learning about autism programming by simple observations of other programs. Educators and docents reached out to bigger museums like the MoMA and the Met and just asked to come and observe their programs. Um, and they were welcomed, of course. Um, and so they took place in not only observing, but also they attended the workshops that Mac was having about autism. And that's how they learned because they started with nothing. Um, they for the pilot program we part we helped them partner with a local school um, a public school that um, was a special needs classroom, and so the school was thrilled because it was a free field trip for them, and Elder Street was thrilled because not only were they reaching out to the community but they were piloting what they were learning in a way where there wasn't a whole lot to lose. It was basically a win-win for everyone. So these are two pictures. On the left um, is a child on the spectrum um, physically touching the stained glass. And we use the stained glass. If you put a piece of paper on the stained glass and you take a crayon, um, you can do a window rubbing, just as you would do a leaf or a coin rubbing. So that's a really great hands-on, very tactile project. Um, on, the, on the, I guess, on your right, um, these are just handling objects. So it's a prayer cloth. Um, that's relatable to the space. Um, so really, anything that you have that people can touch, there's use it. There's no reason for things to just sit there. Um, three years later... Oh, wait, one more thing, sorry. Um, this is a really easy, autism-friendly adaptation that you can make that costs virtually nothing. It's called a visual schedule. Um, it's a visual agenda of what's happening for the day. So if we were to create a visual schedule for our session, it could be a picture of Katie's face, a picture of Callie's face, a picture of Karen's face, me, and then Katie again. That would be a visual way to show what we're talking about. And depending on the level of the students, you can design it in whatever way you want. So for these students, we left spaces because they're at the level where it's a good opportunity for them to practice their literacy. So they wrote in a few sentences, and you can see a younger student could just make check boxes on the side. So literally, whatever you adapt it to however you want it to work. Um, three years later, Elder Street has changed their already existing art projects. So now even for groups that don't, um, don't have autism spectrum disorder within their group, they do window rubbings. Everyone likes a visual schedule. Everyone likes to know what's next, so a lot of these are universal adaptations. Um, They are, for the first time this fall, publicly advertising their autism-friendly program to school groups, um, who will be paying to come, so it's a great way to take something very cheaply and turn it into something much bigger. Um, The other pilot project that we did was with the New York Transit Museum, which is... um, Sorry, I'm way ahead of myself. the Transit Museum is a 1936 historic IND subway station. Um, it's in an actual subway station. So you walk downstairs um, and you go to a platform and there are actual real trains on an actual subway station. Um, it's incredibly fun and you can touch everything. I mean, there are trains. Um, and so unlike the museum at Eldridge Street, the Transit Museum has a long time history of having people on the autism spectrum visit. There's a long time connection between people on autism and trains. Um, So this was not a new audience for them. And they did have specifically trained access educators, which Eldridge Street did not. Um, But it was about taking an already existing splinter skill, which is an overwhelming passion for a specific topic, and turn it into an opportunity to develop lifestyle skills, such as safety, travel, and social skills. MACT helped the Transit Museum partner with New York City's Office for Travel Training to get younger students practicing at the Transit Museum before they join the city-run program as high schoolers. So skills involved learning um, about maps, And this is all just practicing what you could do in real life. They practice at the transit museum. So they use maps to help practice routes and look at routes between school and home that they could learn out in the real world. They practice safety skills when you're riding a train, so you stand up and hold on. Um, Staff, I used to work here. I actually used to work at both institutions. Um, But staff used to come and um, be... Um, used to block doors for students, and they would put their legs up on seats, and you would act out real life scenarios. And the students who were there for the field trip would have to practice saying, "Excuse me, can I sit there?" or "Excuse me, can you move aside from the door?" or you know, so that when you're out in the real world and someone is blocking the door, or you're in rush hour and you're smushed, you know what to do because you've practiced at the Transit Museum. Um, it's really fun. So here's a picture of students practice swiping a Metro card. Um, and you can see on the bottom is a, is a staff member literally blocking the subway um, turnstile. And so, a student has to say, Excuse me, can I swipe my Metro card? And then they have to hold the Metro card the right way and swipe it. And that's an actual turnstile, and it does make a sound when you go through. So, it's way fun. Um, One more program I want to talk about, this is not funded as part of this FAR Fund grant, but they are funded by the FAR Fund, and that's at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum, another institution that has a long-time history of people on the autism spectrum visiting. Um, They had programs, but they hadn't taken off, um, and the Intrepid was kind of at a loss as to what to do. So they developed a parent advisory board. Um, that made the parents who were very involved become stakeholders and they had friends um, and they helped with the numbers at their programs and their numbers are through the roof. Um, so much so that they now open the museum an hour early to allow families to explore. Um, that also gives them the control to be able to turn down the lights and the effects because um, it's, it's like an amusement park in there and so there's a lot of random sounds and that's something that could be very jarring for someone on the autism spectrum. Um, so they're very lucky in that sense that they have that ability to do so. Um, here's an example of their visual vocabulary on the left. So it's words that are used a lot within image to help make connections. And an example of their visual schedule on the right. And you can see um, you can also add time increments. One thing I want you to note that you should not do, because it's not a good idea, is those clocks on top have very specific times. And for someone on the autism spectrum, normally people stick to time, and um, following through exactly what um, sorry, following through exactly what is said is really important. Uh, one second. Sorry. And so the clock said 9 a.m., and if it started at 9.10, that was going to develop anxiety for someone on the autism spectrum. The other clock, it says the program ends at 11. It's not going to end at 11. And so that's something that if you're going to be um, that detailed, d- just don't, because you're gonna, <laughs> it's going to throw you off. You can do first, then last. That's a great way to segment it without getting yourself caught up in something. Um, here are some more pictures of students op- at the early opening at the Intrepid. Um, and I just want to conclude by just um, rephrasing the fact that it's all about collaboration. Everything I've talked about, it is very little monetary value. Um, you don't need a whole new educator to do it, but it's about listening to community and applying Um, what you've developed. So I know that I'm talking about this from New York City where we have a lot of people and a lot of institutions and a lot of resources. Um, So I want to encourage you a few things that you can do is make a coffee date or get a drink with one other educator at a local place and think about how you can collaborate. If you want to go crazy, you can meet with five other educators around. And that's how you start a peer group, which is what goes, grows into a consortium. So we didn't start with this formalized consortium being like, we want to make a formal consortium, let's do it. It started small and informal and grew. Um, so that's what I want to recommend. Um, and we have plenty of time for questions. So thank you.
0: Right. Well, I believe we have a wireless microphone. So if you have questions, please do let us know. And if you have anything that you've done at your own site, you know, we'd love to hear about that, how you've been able to kind of adapt your programs or welcome different audiences. So just raise your hand and we'll get the mic to you.
2: Hi. I guess my question, you mentioned that, you know, it obviously doesn't take a huge budget. And I know one of the things that we struggle with the most is sign language interpreters. They are really, really expensive. So how do you pick and choose what programs you would have them for? Like, do you determine that? Do you do that ahead of time? And we do say if someone calls, we'll obviously provide one. But if we just want to have some at certain events. One of the things,
1: and I don't know the the nature of your organization or the structure of your organization, but one of the things that we um, made a commitment to doing is holding uh, specific days where we, uh, all of our tours or every other tour is um, for the deaf community. And again, that doesn't necessarily um, invite people off the street or make it available for people off the street, but... If um, if you can have a day where you can devote to that, then you're you know making um, maybe a, a push in the deaf community to come on this particular day at this particular time, and um, you get you know more for your money. Um, that's that was sort of the impetus for us developing this ASL tour is that we were getting so many requests, and it might be for for two people. We also knew that you know two people on a tour. Um, with a a general audience that didn't have any type of hearing impairment with a sign language interpreter gets really frustrating. So it wasn't the best possible experience for the deaf visitors um, either. And so uh, having uh, specific times or um, providing them for groups of 20 or more uh, and then having some other reasonable accommodation for other smaller groups might be a way to go. But we found uh, in working with, again, Gallaudet University, um, partnering with them and doing this Deaf Appreciation Day, we worked with, we worked with these, uh, this interpreting, interpretation company who said that that was you know, a really great way to, to phrase it and a really good thing to call it. Um, that went a long way and it helped us you know, provide a day where we, that we were devoting specifically
2: to that. I think it sort of depends on what the demand at your institution is. We haven't had that much of a demand. We, we have offered ASL tours for probably about 15 years, and we have a budget line. Uh, now we, we've never spent it all, but but it's several hundred dollars that we put in the budget every year for ASL interpreters. But we are very fortunate, as I mentioned, to have a paid staff member who is uh, very uh proficient in a s l uh so she is available uh We also have a couple of volunteers who uh, have uh, sufficient a s l uh training uh so what you might do is to get some of that training that that doesn't mean it's always going to provide. Uh, the the maximum, but there's ways in smaller budgets. And at our festival events, the one coming up this weekend, we have buttons uh, that tell our visitors uh, who speaks Spanish, who speaks Korean, who speaks Mandarin, and who uh, is proficient in ASL. Uh, And we have have three people uh, with ASL buttons at all of our festivals.
0: Actually, I have a question about your
1: California Living Program. If the um, did you get any kind of uh, I don't know how to describe this like cross pollination in the sense of you designed a, a, uh, this program uh, f- for people with these special needs mm-hmm. after you did that and you had as your staff learned how that program worked, did you say, hey, we could reapply this back to other programs that we're doing in, in other ways, maybe just f- almost for more of a general audience as well, that there were some techniques of... Well, like, hey,
2: it actually, it was adapted. adapted. And and this this perhaps could be misinterpreted. It was adapted from a children's program. Uh, but I have... I, I To be perfectly honest, I generally, as... Uh, administrator, only do special tours. I, I don't do general public tours. Uh, but I have both our school programs, our special uh, children's programs, our family programs. I adapt those skills when I talk to the general uh, public too. So uh, but what I was talking about, probably we should all be doing for all of our tours. Uh, We're actually, and I'm not even going to get into this, we're getting away from the hour to hour and a half docent-led tour within the next 24, well, actually within the next 10 months. We're we're currently in that process of of completely eliminating the typical docent-led tour.
4: I'm a bit of a secret shopper because um, I'm a mother of a child with special needs so um, and a museum professional. So now when I go to museums, I rethink a lot of what I did before I had my daughter. I also have, um, you know, I a, 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 don't want to use the word normal daughter, but, you know, I have two children. And so I have one that likes to go to museums and one who's had a negative experience at every museum she's been to. And I have to balance that. So my question mainly to Maddie is, what about tourists who are coming in as a family, who has a child that is special needs? Um, My daughter is, um, we call it creating her own box, but um, it's easy to say she's somewhat on the spectrum, but not quite. Um, And then another child who wants to come, you know, because families, because we've talked a lot about special programs, but I'm thinking of, you know, personally, you know, I'm going to a museum, and, and I'm also that parent who has written museums going, okay, you probably need to change this because, you know, you shouldn't put something that is very loud next to your taut spot. You shouldn't, um, you know, maybe you should turn down this area or that area. Um, I, yeah, I'm that parent. But, <laughs> but, again, that's kind of the, the um, that, I've, that something has changed since I had my child outside the programs, just your normal families.
3: Yeah, um, so in terms of, so I'll start with the Museum at Elder Street because they're definitely the least equipped. Um, The materials that they make for school groups the, like The visual schedule they don 't really keep at the visitor 's desk, but they have a visual vocabulary which they do, um, and that 's something that can be applied i mean it 's a synagogue that literally hasn 't changed in one hundred years so it's, like the visual vocabulary isn 't going to change um, so that's, so that 's the type of very easy material that can be left at a visitor 's desk. Um, I also created a scavenger hunt, Um, it was really fun, you just go around and take pictures and you make different variety of of hardness, and adults do it too, and that's another universal thing that you can have for a student, because having a scavenger hunt, um, and this is of course only applicable if if the student with special needs is interested in doing that type of problem solving, but that's something that can really keep someone on track during the visit as well, so that you're on a mission to find things. And while you're finding those things, you can also talk about those things. Um, So those materials we have available. Um, All of the docents did go through autism training. Um, So hopefully, they should be really great with people, Um, all types of people. That was the whole point. Um, Many of them well, when I used to work there, many of them would come up to me after and, and be really excited that they think that someone on the autism spectrum was on their tour and they knew what to do. Um, and, you know, that's great in that sense. Because it just all it means is that there's not this level of ignorance across the board that people aren't afraid to have someone fidget or aren 't afraid to have someone um, have to leave in the middle of the tour or speak up randomly all those things you know as long as you are aware that those might happen, I think that you 're not surprised when it does. Um, the transit museum um, is they 're fine i mean it's all I think it very much depends the in- so yeah, yeah. So the Intrepid is awesome. It's really overwhelming. Um, they have a. It's a big space. Um, has anybody been to the Intrepid? A few, okay, so it's a boat. It's a giant aircraft carrier, um, in a way it's like giant. I mean, like the size of the square block. And they have helicopters and actual planes on the aircraft carrier. Multiple. That's how big it is. Um, and they have a lot of interactive things. Um, there's a lot of things that have lights, there's a lot of things that have sounds, um, there's some fog randomly, um, and those are things that aren't shut off in the middle of the day. So I would say that if those types of things are things that you know are triggers, to go during an, an open hour. And I know one of the questions on our um, directory and calendar that we we'll have is um, for, for specific programs, for people on the autism spectrum or any type of special needs, are siblings welcomed? And for some, Absolutely, it's inclusive for all and for some programs. Um, It's really meant for those specific people. And we're making that very clear on the directory so that um, neurotypical students or siblings can be really welcomed at those events. So I would say if you know that lights and sounds are a trigger, then to not go during that time, because assume for the worse. Um, If if you think it might be okay, I would go and test it out. And many spaces do have a quiet room I know that the Intrepid does have a quiet space because they have so many people, and these are all good questions for you to ask ahead of time. Um, museums like the Intrepid, any sort of vague, historic, very specific relating, um, they probably, at least in the city, they probably do get people with the spectrum coming and they probably do have an access educator on staff, and there probably is a contact information for that access educator, and if you have specific questions, those are the people that I would think about reaching out to. Um, Are there lights? Are there sounds? Are there specific rooms that you would recommend going to? Um, So, those, yeah. Yeah, many of the children's museums in New York have quiet spaces, Um, whether or not it's meant for, like, nursing or toddlers or whatever. It's still a quiet space. Um, So it kind of just depends. Yeah. Yeah.
2: One resource that uh, I'm familiar with uh, is something called Kids Included Together. For about five years, my museum has partnered with them to provide uh, training in how to work with uh, people of differing abilities. Um, If you're interested, this is more informational than a question, kitonline.org, K-I-T, capitalized, online.org. They also have an app for your web-enabled cell phone. Uh, how I, I work in uh, Iowa and they're based in San Diego. How I became familiar with them is uh, they have uh, affiliates that are trained uh, throughout the nation that uh, provide these trainings in various states. So uh, half of being a genius is knowing where to look, Kid Online is a place to start.
0: We're about five minutes over, so we're going to go ahead and wrap things up officially. But if you have any questions, do feel free to come up and chat with us. And thank you all so much for coming.